by introducing myself, but since all of you know me, I won't do that. Um, but as most of you may know, I'm an interdisciplinary artist at uh, Youngstown State University currently. Um, and today, I guess, I'm going to talk about my process and uh, the reason why I make email-based art. Before that, I think it's like important to talk about how I got here and what I've been doing for like the last 10 years. So 10 years ago, I was an English major at YSU and I decided to drop out of school to go to cosmetology school, which I also didn't finish. So that at the age of 24, I decided to go back to school for art. And as most of you know, a lot of my peers and my family were like really displeased by that decision. And I got a lot of questions like, you're 24, when you plan on having kids? What about kids? So if you go back to school now, you won't be able to have kids till you're like 30. Don't you want to have kids? I guess I wasn't really like pleased by like the response and those questions and like remarks about how wonderful motherhood would be and what a terrible mistake I was making. I believe that those encounters are what fueled my early stages of my like clavy installation and uh, foundation drawings of organic shapes which mimic fetal organs, fetuses, and other biological systems in nature such as eggs or seeds. It was in those early courses I realized that everything I had been doing was no doubt uh, female-centric, whether it was specializing in female cuts and color in cosmetology school, writing about my experiences of women in poetry classes, or making art based off of my decision and my reproductive choices. So I just am fueled by the need to like shed light on the inequalities and stigma that surround my existence while supporting and sharing with other females. Um, just like touch base on some of the things that inspire me in like, in an America there's like a great deal of misogyny. Uh, for example, like taxation on pads and tampons, stigma surrounding like female bodily functions, my reproductive rights are constantly at risk, um, along with the objectification of my body on a daily basis. So as a young woman who had been subjected to all these things, I really wanted to create art that explored uh, female bodily functions and become for, more familiar with them. Myself, which like, brings me to my first series, Gestation, uh, which is a collection of nine embryonic-like sacs that loosely represent the idea of pregnancy made from a doll head mold and crystallized nylon. Being inspired by my own choice and doubt when I returned to college for my BFA instead of giving into societal pressure to become a mother, I decided to like start working on these. I wanted the material of these pieces to reflect our own body's development and decay. I chose nylon for the skin of the clavies because this material expands, allowing room for growth, much like our own reproductive organs. The crystals in their process is an element you can recognize throughout my photographs and three-dimensional work. These materials and ideas themselves have a great deal of appeal to me because of their cluster-like formations and that they relate to the buildup and shedding of the endometrium during menstruation along with other roles in the lining that the lining participates in during the fertilization process. Each embryo, if you can see, like is slightly different qualities that represent the nine months of pregnancy, um, and each installation is site-specific. The crystallized nylon acts as a skin-like organ which is removed and then remained over and over again, much like the idea of shedding. When one story of baby had cracks and breaks, I cast a new one to and incorporate the salvaged pieces from the broken one into my next installation, ultimately trying to mock our own journey of development and decay with the idea of our physical bodies breaking down and being recycled back into Earth. While working on this installation, I like began to think about 
other female bodily processes that I had gone through, like such as menstruation. I began to study my own cycle, forcing myself to become more comfortable with my own body and its functions. And in doing so, I noticed the way that the stains of my underwear uh, resembled abstract paintings, and I wondered what type of reaction I would get from viewers if I took those stains and recreated them on a large scale. Uh, acrylic paintings, such as day one and like day two over there. Um, and then after doing that, I started collecting my own uh, materials during menstruation, like used tampons and uh, pads, and I began to crystallize them. And at first I really didn't have an idea of where I was going with it, so I just had a bunch of used dirty tampons, <laughs> um, which was uh, quite strange, but I found an opportunity in my photography class to use them for first a photo project. And then on my own, I started creating uh, these systematic landscapes with the stains and like the different materials that I had collected. Really just like to abstract these materials and make my viewers like view them in a different way to possibly and hopefully separate them from like the stigma that we all have about these bodily functions and to hopefully like create conversation with my pieces about that stigma and why we have it and ultimately like what we can do to like shed light on that and change it, especially today's America and Trump's presidency. So um, that's really it. <laughs> and if anybody has any questions about what I'm doing or my process, you can ask me. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your photo putting your prints on So, like, by all means, if you want to, like, 
photograph your used tampons and like do it. And my ladies actually like, I failed my lady project the first time I did it. Um, and I was like told like not to do it again, but obviously I didn't care. <laughs> so I kept making them and now they are what they are over there. So what do you what do you think you're going to like? What direction are you going to move into next? Um, I'm currently working on <clears throat> a project called Dirty Laundry. Um, so I'm gonna try to like focus on like female experience, I guess more now than like bodily process and getting like other women involved in you know having like their stories of. I, I, I guess it would be misogyny, like shed light on those and, and just uh, continue like forward with making art that is still female centric, but just in a different way. What's your favorite medium to work on? I don't, I don't know. Which one is your favorite? I think the photographs, honestly. I think that um, I'm mostly drawn to photography or interdisciplinary work work where I can like mix fabric and um, like scientific process like crystal growing along with art. I think it's time for Heather. <laughs> <laughs> I have like a statement anyway for the show that was like rattling around in my brain. So a little bit I decided to make it a statement. And so, uh, hi. Uh, hi, my name is Heather Sino. I'm the curator of Take It, the show that we're at right now. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chrissy, for braving <laughs> the experience. I really appreciate your work as a, like, I feel the same about every woman that's in the show. And I appreciate you and, like, speaking to everyone. I so, although this is a pretty tight-knit community, I'm assuming that most of you know who I am, but maybe you don't. So, I'll give you, like, a little background about me. Uh, I graduated from Youngstown State University with a Bachelor of Fine Arts. I'm an interdisciplinary artist focusing on printmaking installation work, um, utilizing clay and embroidery techniques in many of my artworks. My concepts deal largely with rape culture and post-trauma identity. So while I was in college, I was very fortunate to have the experience and opportunity to work as a gallery assistant at the McDonough Museum. While I was there, I was led by amazing women who run a kick-ass museum, and uh, they taught me everything that I pretend to know, I guess, about <laughs> painting art, handling art, um, display, and preparation of a show. Uh, after college, I worked at the Andy Warhol Museum as a gallery attendant, and there I was faced with the stark realization that I know nothing, pretty much next to nothing, about women's art history, and I do attribute that to my education in college. I heard once that if you read 
six books in your field of interest a year, uh, in 10 years you could be considered an expert. So I ordered 15 books on Amazon after graduating because I was determined to become an expert in women's art history. The only hang-up that I had is that I don't remember anything unless I apply it to something. At that point, in that realization, my wonderful partner in the front here, and I um, started a t-shirt business highlighting female artists. As we learned about each one in depth, every artist became a t-shirt. And with each t-shirt, it was one step closer to becoming more proficient and knowledgeable in my field of study. So that being said, um, you still might be wondering how I actually ended up here as a curator, uh, or why even the show came to fruition. First of all, let me say that it probably helps that I went to after-school Bible study groups with one of the owners of the venue. But I'm hoping that it really has more to do with my skills, education, my determination to speak about wrongdoings, and my drive to consistently educate myself about women's art history and our current role as creators. Or also maybe it was just my Twitter feed full of presidential level rants about the inequity of female art. These are jokes. <laughs> I was asked to create a women's art show at Soap Gallery with one caveat. I couldn't use the words women or female in the title of the show. So I got to work researching previous women's art shows their themes and concepts. I thought up immediately at least 100 phenomenal artists to include in the show. I created copious word webs to create a more defined concept for the show and annoyed my partner at max capacity, asking her constantly, is it inclusive, thoughtful, diverse, or professional enough? I remembered all of my gallery training and the limitations of this specific gallery space and narrowed it down to a more manageable show. I sent out invitations to Christy Gearhart, Mia Allaby, Rachel DeCuba, Kareem Jasmine, Hannah Altman, Shannon Black, and Alexis Watson. Miraculously, they all agreed to be part of the show, even people I've never actually met in person. At this point, I needed a name. Being aware of the gallery's opposition of calling the show something like Female, the artistic perspectives of ladies, women, girls, and gals. My partner sent me this perfect quote by Roseanne Barr. The thing women have yet to learn is nobody gives you power, you just take it. I would like to officially welcome you to take it. An art show featuring women making art about being a woman, telling their own stories from their perspectives, Take it as a way to give opportunities to female artists to make, display, and discuss work by other female artists. I wanted this to be a meaningful catalyst for our specific art community. If you're listening to all of this and you're still not sure about the importance of this show or the relevance of the artists involved, if you aren't sure about the significance of this space in which it's happening, or even the precedent that Soap Gallery is making by inviting a female curator to create a female show. I'm going to try to explain this briefly. So historically, women have been left out of the shared human art story. Our early work was included merely as a hobby, craft, or pastime. 
Our art education was restricted and disqualified. Our general access was hampered by those in power to dictate what is seen, shared, accepted, and revered in society as art. Which brings up the question, who is in power? In her collection of essays titled Women, Art, and Power, Linda Knopflin, a prominent feminist art historian, shares her perspective. Things as they are and as they have always been in the arts, as in a hundred other areas, are stultifying, oppressive, and discouraging to all those, women among them, who did not have the good fortune to be born white, preferably middle class, and above all, male. She goes on to say, the fault lies not in our stars, our hormones, our menstrual cycles, or our empty internal spaces, but in our institutions and our education. Education understood to include everything that happens to us from the moment we enter this world of meaningful symbols, signals, and signs. It's a lot. She's my hero. Um, in our current art culture, women are working to create more opportunities for each other. But there is still a real problem with who's getting shown, who's getting collected, who's getting promoted, and who's getting written about. In a recent Art News article, curator and arts writer Mara Riley shares updated statistics of inequality in the art world. In America, and in an age of open education opportunities, 60% of art school graduates are female. Yet, they're only displayed in museums like the MoMA and the Guggenheim 20% of the time. Female artists made up only about 35% of the 2014 Whitney Biennial. It is true that these statistics are seeing some growth since the Guerrilla Girls first published their gallery report card in 1986. The rise in these statistics does not eliminate the work we still need to do. Inequality of women's artwork even permeates females that hold power positions in museums and galleries. These women overlook female artists and display a proclivity for male-created artwork. Perhaps this is due to the lack of exposure they've had to female artists a misunderstanding of the depth of the concepts female artists tackle and the modes in which women choose to practice. What can be done to change the statistics and increase gallery representation of women? American sculptor and visual artist Linda Bangless advises, we as women artists have to make our demands. Because this format has allowed rants longer than my standard 240 character limit on Twitter, I have created a list of demands. I demand that as an arts community, we stop thinking women lack the artistic genius to share their stories. By trusting that a female creative is sharing an experience, both unique to herself, yet relatable to over half of the population, we begin to build a dialogue surrounding these themes. We develop new ways to perceive art, which allows for a broader discussion that includes more voices thus altering the power dynamic of who gets to speak about art and what qualifies as art. Kokenya Nintaya, an educator, feminist, and social advocate said, when a woman is given opportunity, it is not about her, it's about the people around her. This brings me to my next demand. By displaying this truly diverse reality and allowing women more agency over the art put into the world, accessed by spectators and discussed by scholars or art historians, we are given the opportunity for a deep empathy and understanding of human experiences different from our own. 
By demanding to see more than one type of story, we are enacting a new art history that proudly displays every artist's experience. It is our responsibility as artists to create the art history we wish we had. This can be done by reaching out to galleries, venues, and curators, and by requesting studio visits of female artists. When we hold our local art spaces accountable for total parity, we become agents of change in this new art history. When we actively become patrons of the art spaces we hope to get learned about, we build a better experience and a more inclusive art story for all humans. When young collectors demand a broader selection of artwork than they are being offered by galleries, these galleries seek out and support those new female visions. Maybe these demands seem obvious or reasonable. After all, it's March 8th, it's International Women's Day. Um, I have a friend who, a few months ago, declared 2018 the year of the woman. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Pussy hats are a real thing. The Women's March was attended by more humans than the presidential inauguration. And after a majority of art shows featuring men, the Soap Gallery has asked me, a female, to create an all-female show during Women's Month. So it seems like change is happening, right? Um, it seems like a truly amazing time to create this addendum to women's art history. But I have one more demand. These shifts cannot only be enacted by women. Men have the majority of the positions of power in galleries, museums, and texts, and also as professional artists. In addition to aiding with previous demands that I've already listed, your support for your fellow creative is paramount to the speedy success of this movement. By assisting in this endeavor, you too will benefit from a more meaningful art history, one that feels robust and inclusive of every human. My final demand is that male artists stop taking credit for other people's stories. Men can make more thoughtful choices about why they are depicting women in a work of art. The way females are depicted in artwork alters how society reacts to them. In this and so much more, men have the power to change the images put into the world. If you are an advocate for females and their art stories, allow them the power to express these stories and depict themselves how they see fit. Allow women to display ourselves in a way that sheds light on our personal experiences and ideas. When women are reduced to subjects within <coughs> artworks, we lose all power and autonomy. When a woman decides to depict herself in a work of art, she is opening herself up not only to art criticism, but also a deeper criticism imposed upon us from society. All too often, it seems like when a male uses female imagery in his artwork, it's a way to detach emotionally from criticism. In a sense, to hijack a female story of herself, her experiences, in a way to preserve the male's own autonomy. In summation, these are my demands. Give female artists credit, allow them more opportunity, hold art spaces accountable, and respect women by thinking before using a female subject. This show is a direct product of these demands. Thank you. And thank you, Soap Gallery, for allowing these amazing female artists to share their stories. Thank you again, Christy Gearhart, Hannah Altman, Rachel DeCuba, Kareem Jasmine, Mia Alambi, and Alexis Watson.
for allowing me to create this show. Thank you to my wonderful partner, Steph, for helping me with every aspect of the show down to literally the smallest detail. And thank you to my three wonderful daughters, without whom I may never have found a voice loud enough to fight for every woman's right to parity and autonomy. Thanks for coming. Any questions? How hard was it and how long did it take you to narrow down the artist to fit this space? She probably knows better than I do. Um, it was very difficult. I know, I knew in my brain I couldn't just fill it with local artists. I felt like that was very important. Although like I, I feel very connected to a lot of female art that's coming out of this area, that has come out of it for decades. I just wanted to show a broader perspective. So it did take a long time. There, there were like immediately just lists going in my brain in every sketchbook. Then we kind of like narrowed it down through so many long nights of discussion. Uh, you know, wanting to show different media and, you know, include just various themes, but also within the same realm. So it did take a lot. It's like, I think we were very fortunate to find like most of the work was created specifically for the show. And I think that is also a, re a really lovely thing, but it did take, it took a very long time. And it, um, it also took a little bit of moving one artist from being photos to then being a video. You know, so things like that, space issues. Um, my education as a gallery assistant and also my overwhelming need to see more white space in every project that I work on um, is always something that takes precedence over quantity. So it took a very long, long time. Uh, we got invited to do this show, I think, I think Dan and Steve approach up, approached us at something in like December. Uh, so, last year. Yeah, last year. Yeah. <laughs> so, I feel like it was even, it was in the summer, I think was the first like joking, yep, yep, you should maybe do this. And I was like, <laughs> okay, but who would I put in the show? You know, so I kind of think I, I've always, I've had like a list in my brain that keeps growing. Um, but it, it took a long time to narrow it down. Months, probably. <laughs> so the topic, the word that's come up right now, um, I was just at a conference called 5050, and it was just talking about having, this is the most sexist thing I can say, it's 50% women, it's 50% men, and it should be aware of it, and being like, this is like this, you know, all around the curation aspect, it when you see them the McDonald's sign, the photo upside down, you see the, these visuals that are purposeful. Is it is it needed that we still see these symbols in it, or is it needed that it just goes forward as an artist is an artist? You know what is like you know what I'm trying to say is like you need to be overly expressive. Um, I don't think you need to be anything other than what you are. You know, I think if you're a female and you're dealing with something that seems aggressive, 
probably that's in you. It's part of your story, and I think that your work should be reflective of that. I don't think anyone should be denied the right to show and express how they are feeling, you know, and who are any of us to dictate that, you know, a quiet work that seems, you know, relaxed or calm isn't carrying like the same heaviness as something that feels aggressive and chaotic. So I think like it's it's really just how the person chooses to express themselves. I do think that we we are allowed to have a broad spectrum of that in order to get everyone's story told. Also, I'm looking at like, kudos, like with your t-shirt. So if anyone doesn't know, Heather, Heather and Seth both make these t-shirts that are both feminist kind of strong, but it's also like historically relevant. And they made a shirt with like um, a list of last names of like female artists. And it was hilarious but relieving to have Heather, see Heather like explain to people who these artists are. Like you're like, are you kidding me on who George O'Keefe is like just one away right now. And it's like, <laughs> but it it's I don't know, just seeing those I don't know, it's ignorance. There's tons of ignorance in what's going on right now and not then everything thinking that everything's happening now, like it's the big change and it hasn't been anything in the past. Right. When you're full of shit. Like it's been going on for the past like hundred years with you know, George, go back to Georgia Keith, like 1919, she was showing in New York City for the first time. But it's like now, it literally has taken 100 years for like it to not become a groping situation. And it's like, uh, it's, I don't know, Georgia O'Keeffe is one of the, um, she is like touted as like the woman who sold the most expensive female work of art. Um, I think it was like 47 million. Um, that's really cool and it's really powerful until you hear that the most expensive male's work of art is, I think, like three times more than hers. So that is how like the inequity is like working. It's, it's not just, you know, like women in jobs and we're all working jobs. It's like even in art you see that inequality in sales. So it, it is important to stick up for female artists. Uh, thank you. things to open up with. So I am English, but no, I didn't I, I didn't live in London. Um, I don't really care for the Beatles, not like at all. Um, and yes, I've read all the Harry Potter books. <laughs> so also if I say anything um, really British and you don't understand, I'm not opposed to being interrupted. So I completed my BA honours in Fine Art at Leeds Arts University in Yorkshire. 
under Paula Chambers within the Sculpture Strand. And I was actually instantly captured by Paula's sculptural pieces, which represented elaborate resentment of motherhood, whilst remaining uncomplicated and simplistic, especially one of her creations, For the Love of God, which was a baby romper knitted from stinging nettle yarn, suggested painful endurance as a new mother. This inspired me to create simpler works and allow concepts to ground my own project. As a transgender woman, my pull towards social norms and standardised ideas of beauty stem directly from experiences with what often feels like an outside world. Having been disowned by my father after beginning my chemical transition and subsequently facing physical abuse, I began to harbour heavy feelings of self-loathing which still remain. My art practice is my curative journey, allowing me the platform to fight for trans people who feel similarly let down. This is also an arena to appreciate my own evolution. So because a, being a woman is my sole stimulus for working, I fall back heavily on my interest in traditional women's work, i.e. dressmaking, needle crafts, and work with fabrics. The stimulus for doing so, other than it being a medium which is conducive to my changing ideas, is to directly display the subtraction of women. I, like many other female artists, use historically modest and unassuming materials to make very loud and unapologetic statements. I am interdisciplinary and explore many processes, though often some aspects of costume or making is present in, in the work. That comes up a lot. So growing up in the UK, I was raised on British women in the arts, such as Cornelia Parker, Barbara Hepworth and Tracy Emin, as well as cultural icons such as Susie Sue and Kate Bush, cementing a pull for polarising actions and works. One of my current favourite American creatives is the late Greer Langton, a transgender artist who hand-stitched dark and glamorous dolls. Langton has a posthumous display at the Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh, which I think we should road trip if I'm still together, because I haven't seen it yet. That would be exciting. Um, the process within which Langton worked on soft sculptures seemed cyclical, as dolls underwent surgeries to modify their bodies and to change appearance, changing clothes. Okay, so I'm going to start with head of hair, which just stopped, but it's just been looping the whole time. Um, it's actually the only piece on display which was not made specific, specifically for this show. It was made in 2016. It's called Head of Hair. And the shaving of my, he my head under a red blaze represented impenetrable beauty ideals which lead women to measure their value through the way they look. Cutting hair to the scalp demonstrated defiant unwillingness to be moulded by a society which values outward appearance over meaningful words and actions. Giving people the choice and freedom to decide how they wish to look without attached stigma fueled me to create a charged visual. My own image, captured by multiple film cameras, which were actually mounted on a rig, so I had a number of cameras going at once so I could get the whole perspective going right around my head, but I couldn't see myself and a monitor so that I could actually see what I was doing, otherwise it was going to be a bit of a botched job. So these captured images came to mirror the multitudes of penetrating concerns we're programmed to consider regarding the way we look. 
being too plain, too fat, too tall, too dark, too ugly, or too old. Whilst the focus on the subject, I hoped, restored faith in the fact that the choice, nevertheless, lies with the individual themselves. The hairdresser's smock was made by hand in red to further frame my head and neck. Trimmed in stripe, the smock served to hold snake-like markings, alluding to the coming crisis of exposure. I think also it's important to add while we watch this that all this leftover hair is actually in a bag, in a box, all taped up under my mum's bed in England. <laughs> she doesn't know it yet. <laughs> so we're going to feel the earth shift when she finds out. <laughs> I can't wait, I'm going to get an angry email. Um, so actually the thorn in my side painting, which is just on the side wall at the back, was created as the namesake of the Eurythmic song, and the Eurythmics fans, yeah, <laughs> um, which I discovered recently and became fixated upon. I had a strange response to the song, whereby all the lyrics seemed to refer to my relationship with my dad. The sumptuous colours and imagery of the video played a part in the colour scheme for the painting, whilst the notion of being forever negatively marred by a person was inevitably the substance. I questioned how, in my new life thousands of miles from my hometown, with my American husband starting my American life, I could possibly still feel a rejection from years preceding. The imagery of the poised blade represents the potential for pain, whilst the very utensil itself symbolises my new routines in the kitchen, cooking for my spouse. An undisclosed struggle is depicted within the piece. A struggle between the want to please a partner and the moral unwillingness to become a folding housewife. The intentional good housekeeping-esque appearance of the implement alluded to a time whereupon the only way to meet requirement was by yielding to man's every demand. I'm going to talk about my installation now. Um, it's entitled Camisole de Force and it actually came together after a bout of self-harm in February. I contemplated the hurt I put myself through, stinging slices, and began formulating ideas for the show. My imagining was of a true-to-form jacket designed and made to simulate the ones from research, which would become my own emotional camisole de force. This, the direct translation from French is straight jacket, apparently, I hope no one's French. Um, and it suggested that it is suggested that the first was actually devised by an upholsterer for a hospital in 1790. So from initial sketches, I devised a pattern from scratch with which to begin my making processes, which lasted a number of days. Incorporating hardware elements and utilising hardy utility strapping was important to me to maintain sincerity. The standard usage of a straitjacket is to restrain people who may cause harm to themselves or to others. This is the standpoint from which the installation was made, a garment with the potential to protect oneself and ground the mind. Research suggested that the Victorian age of medicine and asylum welcomed the straitjacket not only as a torture instrument, but primarily as a pacifier within understaffed facilities. The mentally ill have been subjected to the confinement of a straitjacket for centuries. I contemplated the symbology of a traditional straitjacket, an object representing confinement, torture and restraint. Though from my position, it seemed the cruel puppet master was somewhere in my own head, riddling me with feelings of inadequacy. 
the jacket merely serving as shelter. The white carnations are an unassuming bloom, symbolising purity and good luck. The inclusion of this flower element was to embody the essence of a living thing inhabiting the restraint. The eventual, the eventual browning of the petals and or shedding of the leaves would serve as a visual depiction of a worn and wilting mind. That's all I've got to say, really. Thank you for coming. Does anyone have any questions? Dan's working on something. Oh, I am. Yeah, <laughs> you've been working on it. Um, so when it comes back to, like, I guess I'll call it, I don't want to call it before because it, like, I would argue this is like, your, your video is now my mind constantly. And it's just like, it's just like such a, I don't know, it's a heavy mark. Like, it's a heavy, heavy dose. Mm. Taken, it's like literally a, a visual scar. You see, of like something just you're losing it. And yeah. do you feel like when you're making that piece, what are you, what are you gonna do with the hair? Right. Or, or I, what are you gonna do with it? Like, what are you gonna? Like, what, yeah. Um, there's a lot to it. There have been a few times where I've tried to use it because there's a lot of it as well. So I'm thinking this is gonna go to waste. What a waste if I just throw this away. Um, I've tried to do lots of things. I've tried to embroider with it. I've, you've got to be pretty skilled to do something like that. So yeah, for now, it, yeah, like I said, it's all, it gets gross though after a while. It's like um, like when you grab a ball of dust from under the bed. It's like a big matted. What's my mum gonna do with it? That's the question. It's gonna throw it away. It's gonna get thrown away. Now with your straight jacket piece, with the wilting of the flower or the flowers on the bottom. Now, I, I, you saw that coming with that, but did can you talk more about that? Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, they've not wilted as much as I thought they might do. I thought I expected like a brown, crusty, like. But really, it was it was just important that there was something alive inside of it that that could symbolize a a being and a a, a person. Inhabiting the suit. That's really all it was. Um, so I know is so they're drying it out actually. So it's preserved. It's kind of weird because they're drying out, preserving right now. Yeah. So, so I know uh, on the counter there's one of the petals, mm -hmm. and uh, it's I don't know we've seen it just uh, like drying out flowers. It's becoming you know like a memory or a something precious, I guess. Because mm -hmm. That's nice. Nice. Okay. Right. We've seen the flowers dry out and preserve themselves. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, I just, I like the notion of it just being a natural process and what, what happened just did. So when I first looked at the straitjacket piece, it did strike me, like I didn't immediately register it as a straitjacket. Mm. The only thing that connected it for me were the chains. Mm. Pulling it from the root, but on its own, I thought it was interesting how it looks sort of like a very flowy, free gown yeah. almost when it's not tight and restraining yeah. somebody. So I thought it was interesting with the chains, the decision made to like. It, it was one of those things where we, 
we came in and we had decisions to make regarding how that how that went up. And Dan just came out the back with that chain. Yeah. I mean, it just seemed, it just went up and it just seemed like it, it all tied in together. So he's actually a collaborator on this piece, I think. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's from a sort of traditional straitjacket design whereby like some of them were like cropped and sort of tied like a, like a course it would be, but the arms were just crazy long because someone just, just wanted to be able to tie up their relatives for some quiet or something. So the, the long arms and the, that was part of my interest. I wanted to bring some of the nostalgia back to it. Yeah, when I first looked at it, it almost looked alien to me. Like yeah. Made for something inhuman. Mm. But then it was I like, like I think the shock of realizing that it's based on something that's actually used for restraining humans as well. Yeah, my research on this, I mean, just researching for the talk, it's crazy how mentally ill people just tied to the wall and things like that. Bizarre. Um. When you're uh, removing your hair here, uh, I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to your expressions. Okay. And, and I apologize if, if you had stated this already, but no? uh, perhaps if you could reiterate. Uh, what were you thinking as you were doing this? Like, what was going Because I see some catharsis. Mm. And, and I yeah. was hoping you could elaborate on that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I set all this up. This was a whole day's thing. It was all set, set up, and then there were a couple of hours of like, okay. I'm going to think this through. I had a screen so I, I knew I could see how I was going to do things. It, it was all like, I need to get an extension cable, need to tape this down, need to do this so that everything would just run smoothly and it could just be an uninterrupted process. So, like, there is a really short instance where I get really upset and that that, I feel, was the realisation, the catharsis, that, like, this is actually, this, you know, like, how hair grows, like, where was I at this point where the hair is here, and what was I thinking here, and how was I, that, it was all just, yeah, gone and all over me. This is, so there was, like, milestones. Yeah, that's how I saw it, okay. yeah and like dye marks, like oh, I remember when I dyed my hair then and then that was really close to that time when this happened so it, so it is, it's like a scrapbook the journal of events yeah. yeah, yeah, like a timeline and you can correct me if I'm wrong if this is a misread it seems like between your video here and your straight jacket here um, there's a strong sense of personal healing um, and you think you had mentioned earlier in your discussion that you use sort of art as your coping mechanism for lack of a better word. Uh, would you consider donating your hair? To I did look into this as well. They only want good hair. <laughs> hair that's not gross. <laughs> <laughs> like hair, hair that's not I don't know processed. what it's good hair. Uh, yeah, so unprocessed hair. And it has, I feel like it's a minimum of 18 inches or something. Just didn't quite make it. But yeah, unprocessed hair. Yeah. I can donate it to someone else. <laughs> so this was like a whole day event 
Yeah, not the actual shaving, the getting everything together. Yeah. Yeah. I edited it down just for this. <laughs> Uh, did you have any music playing like during the day, or like, or did you, or was it all silent the whole time? No, I believe it was silent. So Razor's pretty loud. I feel like that would be. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. Did we? Yeah. I had a friend with me just because I knew there would be bits at the back at the end that I just wanted sorting out before I left, and I had a monitor so that I could see, like I said. Um, I feel like we might have had music on. I definitely remember. Yeah. So you couldn't hear much yeah, of it. No. Such a satisfying sound there. That. Yeah. Click and talk. What were we listening to? Probably something really embarrassing. Like the Eurythmics. Or, yeah, not the Beatles. That's cool. <laughs> so there's some very popular and strong themes that so many women are dealing with. Um, do you believe in a possibility for true reprieve or do you think that moments where you're creating and connecting with people that are similar are the, the best chance for reprieve? Do you believe in a, a time where you could create without that overlying? I'm really interested in creating from a place of hurt and even just this, being able to talk to people and meet people and having an opening and meeting new people, talking about work, people that are interested in the things that you're doing. I mean, it, it doesn't forgive, it, it's not, it doesn't rule it all out, but it maybe makes you realise that, that other people can relate to what's going on, can enjoy your work, and that's rewarding. How would you describe your relationship with your hair? Mm. I know that's a weird question. Yeah. Um, I like change. So that's why that was bad hair, because I just, I just pushed so much to be something better. I want to be more glamorous. I want I want my hair to be something that it's not. So that's why that's such a good question. That's my relationship with my hair. I cut it all off, so maybe I'm kind of frustrated with it. This yeah. is like as you as you're actually going through the emotions and there are so many different uh, emotions that you go through and face, it's kind of like saying that um, the relationship that you have with your hair, as you're cutting it, it's like, it's, you're, like you're kind of asking yourself, like, what the hell am I doing? Mm. But then as, as you're done, it's like, that feels a lot better. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. And I totally agree with you. And then also, there are some points where it's like, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a, a, whirlwind, a whirlwind of different feelings altogether. How did you feel? Uh, I went through like it's, I don't know how similar it is, but uh, I shaved my head mm. one time. That was weird. I had a lot of purpose behind it, I guess. But how did you feel uh, like the next week? I 
This is the haircut I had when I was 10, 11, 12. And I think then that I was like, this is why I've not had short hair. It took me back to childhood, boyhood. Um, yeah, reactions from other trans people. There are a lot of trans people. Some of the trans women that I'm really interested in, some from the UK that are kind of cool with um, doing talks and being really defiant, all have shaved heads, and I think it's crazy cool. So, I, yeah, I didn't get any negative responses, not really. But for myself, yeah, as it was growing back, I was kind of over it. What a stupid thing I did, I was really gutted. I'm kind of thinking back to your use of the, the plants inside of the, the leaves, rather, inside of mm -hmm. your, your piece on the set, and how the result wasn't really what you were expecting and mm. not degrading as fast as you thought. Yeah. I'm curious if that has any kind of representation on your perception of the piece and its meaning, if that hasn't like, developed at all, being the result that's come from it. I think there are a lot of times when you have something in mind and it doesn't always work out, but this is one of those times where I, I expected one thing to happen, but I'm not unhappy that it didn't. I'm just, like I said, it was just more important that something was alive there. I'm kind of interested in that thought too, because I know the original intent was to kind of show the degrading of it, yeah. and its persistence to kind of resist against that. Which is kind of nice, yeah. isn't it? I'm kind of, it almost seems like a metaphor in itself of like, you yeah. know, just to push through the pain that you've experienced in creating a piece like this. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I like that. I mean, obviously, I found out about the foundations. They're the hardiest flower. <laughs> yeah, I knew that would happen. I would say, uh, if you could have a score or a soundtrack to this, what would it be? Mm. There was sound to it. I, mm, we cut the sound off for this because we were like, let's just be like good people. I was like, Nick, can you help me? We'll just get rid of the sound for this because you would have hated it. You would have been driven insane. I 
had a friend who played the violin, and I was like, I really love like 1960s The Exorcist. So I'm like, <laughs> strings. So it's like, yeah, and like scratching. Yeah, yeah. It's dead like, and then I overlap the sound, so it's just layers and layers and layers of like. So people, when I've shown it before, people would be like with the headphone on, like, yeah, cool. <laughs> like, uh, but hmm, if someone wanted to score something else, but I feel like anything would go with it. Why not? Anything. Anything. I can't help but picture the rhythm that's doing that. I guess it's all I can hear. Mm. <laughs> 